Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. With me all the way across the pond is the man who the Wall Street Journal called the gold standard in ghost hunting, the most honorable Stephen Parsons. That's uh, very generous of you. Honourable, huh? But uh, I thought you had a you have a title, don't you? I do not. I thought you had a British title. Oh yeah, Lord uh, Ronald Cole. Yeah. There you go. Lord yeah, whatever. Ron of Colette. Lord Ron of Cole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anyways, I I uh, yeah. I got your uh, your uh, little write up for the this month's newsletter. And, oh, good. Uh, yeah, and I did have to correct the spelling, though, you know. So. Which spelling is that, then? The one where we spell it correctly in English? No, no, no it's just some weird words that I've never heard before. So. You mean like, what? Give me an example. Give our listeners an example. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to uh, upstage No, you. no, it won't. It won't upstage me or, or offend me in the slightest. Really? No matter how yeah. hard I try? No matter how hard you try. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, how was Fourth of July? Oh, let me let me get back to you. You you brought it up. So okay. Spectra. How do you spell Spectra? Spectra. Mm-hmm. As a you know the ghost. I, I, no, Spectre. S P E C T R E. No, no, no. O R. Yes, yes, yes. No, 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 no. no. It's called English for a reason. Spectra. No. no. T R E. Spectra. What? Yeah, like Inspector, what's her face? Inspector, as in a ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. English for a reason. If we invented the language. Yeah. It's not not American, it's English. Yeah, it's like you take all the the letter U's from all the words, put Z's in things that aren't needed. Hi-ho. So anyway... Uh, yeah, how yeah. was Fourth of July? Fourth of July was fine. Uh, I and, spent and most did of my you... time working, but whatever. Well, but I don't. You know, we, notice... we have a guest. I, so I didn't notice the prank. I didn't want to just chat about the Fourth of July. What prank? The prank where you uh, crazy glued your brother to the chair. I no, that no, that's, that's just him being silly. He's always silly. Anyways. I want to bring on uh, uh, my guest today, and she is someone who I've known, geez, for a long time. I haven't spoken to for quite a bit, but uh, she is the ghost investigator, Miss um, Linda Zimmerman. Hello. Linda, hi, how are I, you? I am. Hello. Can you hear us all right? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're fine. Okay, so that's that's cool. Um, I. We haven't spoken for quite a while, have we? No, and I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, especially on, on Facebook, we weren't even friends, which I found amazing. It's like because we, we have known each other. We've met each other a couple of times in, in, since, uh, what, 2008 or something like that, maybe sooner. I can't remember. Yeah. Oh, at least probably uh, more like 10 years. So, well, it's uh, regardless, it's, it's good to speak with you again. Mm-hmm. Now, Linda, you are in New York, and you you uh, have been investigating the paranormal for like a hundred years, right? <laughs> a slightly less, uh, more more like uh, twenty now. It's, it's, that's amazing, huh? So, I mean, what what got you into the paranormal that would make you do a crazy thing like in, investigating invisible people in a dock? Well, it certainly wasn't anything I thought I would ever be doing. I um, I started out my career as a research chemist for a medical diagnostics company, but I enjoyed writing about local history, and um, I was asked to start lecturing about some of the, the local stories, and people started asking about ghost stories. And um, actually, I was I was somewhat offended that uh, I, they wanted me to taint my history lecture with ghost stories. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I loved ghost stories and Hans Holzer and all that when I was a kid. So I started collecting stories, but I realized the best way to tell a ghost story was to try to experience the haunting. So that's how I got into investigation. So, I mean, you were a chemist at one time, so, I mean, and you said you were a little annoyed because uh, people want to know about ghost stories and to taint your history. So, I assume you went in with a fairly skeptical mind, and, and has that changed since you first started doing it? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, over the years now, and I can't even tell you how many hundreds of cases I've worked on, so many incredible inexplicable things have have happened that i've seen and heard and felt um i am i am definitely convinced there is there is something there's something out there we have a, actually a gentleman on the on on the line with us as well he's uh, steve parsons from the uk uh he was in uh, the uh, he's the founder of Parascience and was also in most haunted and a lot of documentaries as well but most recently the wall street journal went all the way over to uk to call him the gold standard in ghost hunting so as a ghost hunter are you kind of offended by by that that they would select this gentleman from across the pond over someone from the us Oh, not at all. Um, I'm I am descended from many noble Britishers, so I'm honored that uh, <laughs> I'm honored that a Brit got the title. Uh, no, no comment from Mr. Passes, evidently. None whatsoever. I think he must be. Are <laughs> he, he's drunk again? I'm not sure which one. No, no, I'm not joining in this conversation while you're taking it down this avenue. That's why. I- and then just remain the gold standard. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you can feel to, uh, you know... Actually, feel... we, we can make a correction here. The, the uh, uh, Wall Street Journal actually uh, did that, uh, called me the gold standard twice. Twice? Two, 2012, 2014. Well, it's now kind mm-hmm. of redundant. 
Anyway, Linda. <laughs> yes, but, but just one last word on this. Um, Ron, have have you or I been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal? So this may not be a representative sample that they have taken. Ooh, good point, Linda. Good point. <laughs> you, you know what it is? Everybody just loves that, that foreign accent. You know, all, all the girls go goo-goo eyes over it, so I think that's why they did it. You know, they had to go... To the far reaches of the earth to find one. Anyway. Actually, the, it was a male journalist from New York. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I was just <laughs> <laughs> I Just putting it into context that uh, the, you know, I don't American know how we journal- got down this road, but certainly. I don't uh, either. I mean, yeah. as, as I've said to you before, the fact that I got called the gold standard in ghost hunting and we're on record with this from an earlier show is is, is actually a very sad indictment on the state of modern ghost hunting because my because i am i just do it properly i use good methodology good practice um which anybody can do the trouble is that most people don't do it therefore by doing it properly that makes me the gold standard and that's incredibly sad for ghost hunting not because not that i'm the gold standard but that everybody else isn't because it's you know, not a high standard i, I disagree i mean lender i'm sure you do it properly at least in that you believe you are right i certainly endeavor to do so uh, with my scientific background i um i think i i look at it at all these cases as something of an experiment that you set up you you know you have controls um you have standards that you look for, and you try to be skeptical, but yet uh, when the evidence presents itself, you interpret it in the most rational way possible. Mm-hmm. I can't disagree with much of that. See, that makes perfect sense to me. So there you go. So anyway, speaking about you investigating for 20 years now, and do you want to tell us, I mean, about some of the the most interesting cases, perhaps, that you have investigated? And and I know a couple of them, but I want to see if, if anything else has moved up on the list since the last I talked to you. Well, just had a very interesting one uh, last night that uh, has already moved up on the list. It's... Um called Museum Village in Monroe, New York, and what a wealthy collector did for his 27,000 antiques was built an entire 19th century village of buildings to house all his artifacts, and um, we were there investigating last night, and uh, a a lot of... uh, a lot of ghosts or specters have have come in, attached themselves to various objects, and it was quite a fascinating evening, everything from shadowy figures to, uh, at one point, I thought it was one of the employees in something of a 19th century clothing until he walked several feet and disappeared. 
and you know, uh, caught me by surprise for a second. I'm like, okay, that that was a full-bodied apparition. So it was uh, quite a fascinating night. Yeah, it's so. I mean, we, you talk about we, we. So you know, everybody thinks of Linda Zimmerman, the ghost investigator. They think of you predominantly, but you have a team that you work with. Well, sometimes I, I go alone. The first time I was at this location, I go alone. Um, but last night I was with um, Michael Warden, who's a police officer, who obviously knows how to investigate things. Mm-hmm. Um, we had uh, psychic Barbara Blitzhofer with us. And uh, Michael's two, Mike's two twin boys, who are, I believe, 12 or 13 now, who are very sensitive and intelligent and this was their first ghost hunt and we thought this would be a good place uh for them to start and uh so we're we're grooming the next generation uh ghost investigators excellent uh and so how they do for their first uh trip out well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of adults who wouldn't have been as brave as they were. Um, they were willing to go everywhere and, and sit on the, the, the spots of the most activity and had some great suggestions as to what to do with the cameras and equipment. So, uh, yeah, I, I think they deserve their own show. They were great. So what, what type of equipment did you use uh, in this investigation? Well, we had a variety of uh, EMF meters and uh, infrared cameras and the thermometers and um, nothing nothing too exotic. Um, I'm I'm not a big fan of the spirit boxes and things like that. Um, I, I prefer to use our our sixth senses and uh, and the standard equipment. Uh, you know, as they say, cameras and meters. That's interesting because uh, Steve Parson believes in that as well, don't you, Steve? <laughs> um, well, yes. I mean, we, so the reason I'm staying quiet is we had the long uh, uh, last week's show was was essentially uh, Ron and I discussing how to investigate the paranormal. One of the things I've always said is that um, I, we have to measure things from time to time. But I'm not. I'm absolutely not a fan of those EMF meters uh, because. As a physicist, they serve no purpose whatsoever. They didn't provide sufficient information. I think that's what LeBron's alluding to and baiting me on. No, actually, I was agreeing with you on your your uh, Harry oh. Price thing oh. with the pen and the pad. Basically, uh, oh, observe the environment by yourself. You are the best, best ghost detector. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, it is a human experience, and that's what you know. That's the method that that, that Linda's clearly well down you know has got well down um that we are looking at a human experience and you, know, you do not weigh yourself down with a load of equipment in fact on her own website which i've been scrolling through earlier I mean, she makes that point very very clearly about don't run out and spend thousands of dollars on equipment um use your intelligence use your sense is there the best tools that you have i 100 percent agree with with what linda's saying there excellent so Lender, uh, before I forget, which I always do, can you give out your website for us uh, and how people can get in touch with you? Sure. Um, My website with all my different uh, pursuits is gotozim.com. That's G-O-T-O-Z-I-M.com. 
and you can get in touch with me uh, through the website. And I have uh, multiple Facebook pages for my different uh, pursuits as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you say different pursuits. What else do you uh, are pursuing? <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Well, I, I write fiction, and I write about history. I'm working on um, a book of some of the stone sites in the area, which I think are not colonial root cellars and walls. I think um, at least date back to the Native Americans, if not uh, pre-Columbian. Um, so that's one of my interests. I also, through through my ghost lectures, people came up to me and started telling me their, their UFO sightings. And ah. uh, I heard enough stories that I now have two books on that and actually award winning and an award-winning film um based on my research here in the in the hudson valley so um if it's uh if it's unusual i'm probably into it <laughs> i think that's what we all do i mean as far as uh we love things that are not normal i guess you would say <laughs> <laughs> exactly I, I know that myself is, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the thing. I, I watch those uh, ancient aliens uh, thing on uh, History Channel, uh, not so much for, you know, what they say is proof of ancient aliens, but just because I enjoy their take on it, for one, uh, because they're always slanted, of course, to uh, make whatever they present as evidence. And the other thing is, of course, is they talk about a lot of the unusual things in our planet, which is we have quite a few. Yeah, the things people have created uh, is astonishing, and I think uh, civilizations go back farther and we're more capable than than we currently uh, believe. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you talk about the uh, the caves and so forth, uh, and it's a really funny you say that because just this, this past, uh, not this past week, the week before last, uh, Ann Carrigan, my host from Next Generation, and I went to America's Stonehenge in uh, Salem, Mass- uh, Salem, New Hampshire, and it's an interesting site. Um, Unfortunately, though, the, you know, everything they, they kind of present is not necessarily the truth. So you have to kind of sort through everything. Right. It, it, is, a, it is an amazing site. I think the most impressive are the, are the astronomical alignments for the stones. And that's um, – I was just this past weekend at uh, a stone chamber site that on the winter solstice sunrise – the uh, sun comes right through the front door and illuminates the back wall. And I also had a uh, computer program that I was able to generate the horizon in front of it because it's very heavily wooded now. And that mm-hmm. same sunrise would come up between two mountain peaks right in the middle. And yet, you know, the official experts say it was a root cellar. Like, really? Your, your potatoes need uh, an exact winter solstice sunrise alignment um, oh. so uh, I mean in fairness actually I mean we did we, just picking up on what you're saying about the experts say it's a root cellar now I, I obviously don't know the location you're talking about being 3,000 miles away from it but the idea that a building um, has an astro alignment 
that it aligns with midsummer or midwinter, one of the solstices, or one of the, the sort of uh, equinox solstices, and also equinoxes as well. It uh, doesn't mean it necessarily has a religious or significant alignment. For example, the last house I lived in had a perfect um, so, uh, solstice alignment when the uh, sunrise, the sun shone in through the back door, right along the, the entrance hallway, um, and illuminated the front door. Now, it was just a house. And I know of many, many examples where, you know, houses are built, uh, they're aligned to, to maximum yeah, light, or they're yeah. aligned for location. Yeah, well, no, just, just you know, you, houses, you know, you don't tend to have a north-facing, uh, north, uh, north-facing main uh, facade on the house, because it doesn't catch the sun very well. Or you're looking at the view, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it could have been a root cellar. Um, the fact that it's aligned doesn't mean it's religious. And, I remember uh, when uh, at America Stonehenge, uh, there's a, a structure called the Watch House, and I went there uh, during, oh God, it was like February, it was freezing with the uh, Professor McLeod from the University of Lowell. And we had to get up for the stupid sunrise for this thing. And uh, in the chamber, uh, what the Native Americans would do is they would sit in there, and when the perfect alignment came up, they were able to see a constellation that we couldn't see um, without a telescope. They were actually these blue lights that it would appear not on the back wall, but almost as a reflection where this uh, uh, constellation appeared. I forget what the name it was. I think it's a dog constellation. I can't remember. It was so long ago. But uh, it's interesting because this is recorded, and yet that constellation wasn't discovered until uh, way afterwards. So the, uh, I think there are some stone structures, as Linda says, that are more than just root cellars. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, we, we know that Stonehenge here in the UK is, is astro-aligned. We know that many of the barrows um, here in the UK and on the, uh, you know, on the continent in Europe are aligned. But simply an alignment doesn't necessarily mean ritual. It could be, you know, unintentional alignment. Or it could be an intentional alignment for, you know, for other reasons, non-ritual reasons. They might have just liked it that way. Right. I, I don't That's look at all respect. these as... Particularly religious sites, but they're at least calendar sites. We have um, a lot of stone sites where, when you stand at the central pillar, there are stones along the horizon that they needed a way to tell. You know, they didn't have calendars pinned to their their walls, so they needed ways to tell what the equinoxes and the solstices were. And uh, I think when you do find such an alignment on any type of old structure, um, especially one that they're using these massive rock slabs to construct with a lot of effort, um, I think it definitely points to, well, they put it at this location in this alignment for a reason. It's not like taking a, you know, a million suburban houses and, you know, 10% of them have alignments by chance. I mean, we're talking about one structure in the middle of the woods on the top of a mountain that was was quite deliberately built, I feel at least. Mm-hmm. The, the other interesting thing about some of these structures, Linda, is, is you know, they, they look at some of the alignment and they say, oh, look at it, it's lined up and everything. Of course, you have to really look at the sky 
during that period it was built uh, because, you know, the sky is always changing. I mean, one of the coolest things I ever got was uh, when I bought my son his uh, telescope, it came with a, uh, a program that uh, would show the sky at every certain dates. You know, you could go, go back in time and, and see what the sky looked like, uh, the style, star alignment and so forth, which is an interesting thing. I think sometimes people overlook that. Right. Well, like Newgrange in Ireland, um, you know, the the sunrise is slightly off, but that's because it was built, you know, so many, uh, you know, a thousand or more years ago. And uh, because of the Earth's precession, things do rise and set in, in different locations. So that's a whole fascinating field of archaeoastronomy that um, I, I just love. Yeah. Now, in, in investigating these stone chambers, have you ever had any reports of hauntings combined with them? There does appear to be um, a lot of paranormal activity around these sites. However, I have to say a lot of the or a good number of them are built on areas of uh, near iron mines that have high concentrations of magnetite and also uh, natural uh, earth magnetic fields that, you know, may possibly play tricks on people's minds. Um, so it may be the ground itself that is influencing uh, the human mind at these locations. Yeah, that's the uh, interesting thing about it because it's it's all about the human mind and how we perceive everything. That's uh, and what influences uh, our mind to see what we see, or to hear what we hear, or to uh, witness what we witness. Yeah. And just just to come back on Newgrange because it's it's uh, not very far <laughs> directly across the water to a place I spend a lot of time in Ireland. Uh, Three thousand two hundred BC Newgrange dates from. Um, so it's quite a quite a sight, and it does have a ghost. It has its own ghost, but like a lot of um, British sites in particular, archaeo uh, uh, astronomers and uh, archaeologists have now started to realise that, including Newgrange, that these actually are, are not midsummer alignments; that they're uh, actually midwinter alignments. They're midwinter solstice aligned rather than the previously thought of midsummer, which we here in the UK we have all druids going to Stonehenge, etc., etc., midsummer. Mm -hmm. But Stonehenge is a, is another uh, example of a, an alignment that's actually midwinter. And when you consider in terms of the the ancient year, uh, the midsummer was pretty meaningless. There was nothing really happening. But midwinter mid was a very significant time because it, it meant the rollover from the old year to the new year. Uh, and so a lot of these sites, they've, they've uh, in the last 10 years at least, have reassigned as midwinter alignments, including Newgrange. Interesting. Well, speaking about uh, calendars and, and winter and summer, uh, Linda, you, you said you investigated for over 20 years. Have you found any correlation between the calendar and uh uh, supposedly hauntings? No, I I haven't. You know, of course, a lot of people think everything happens around Halloween, but I think <laughs> things <for> sure. right. <laughs> I think things happen at sites according to the nature of the haunting. If there was, uh, well, if the uh, can you hold the a second? That's is caused by a Linda, tragedy. Linda, 
Linda, that's the break. I'm sorry. I missed it. Okay. Anyways, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles, Next Generation, I mean, International with Steve Fassen right back. I'm sorry, Linda. That's okay. Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be with remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased. We'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. I'm glad we invented it. I imagine you're just thinking the 4th of July wouldn't have happened if the Americans hadn't thrown it into Boston Harbour without the coffee, without the uh, milk and sugar. But hey ho, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International, part two. And our guest tonight is Linda Zimmerman, and before the break, she was rudely interrupted by running straight into the heartbreak. Um, uh, whilst answering a question about calendar ghosts. So I think without further ado, we'll just go straight back to the answer. Um, 
which was uh, Ron was asking about calendar ghosts. Where yes, um, right. <laughs> I I haven't seen any you know correlation to time of year. It's it's really case by case dependent. Um, for example, I'm thinking of a farm where the most of the activity occurs. Uh, during what would have been harvest season, when the most people would have been on the farm, you know, harvesting the crops, there was a double axe murder in January um, in 1849 in a town in New Jersey, and the most activity in the house occurs around that time of the murders every January. So I think it's, uh, as I was saying dependent upon the circumstances of the haunting rather the, than the the time of the year. Would it be, do you think there's a possibility that we're dealing with an environmental correlate here in that uh, these calendar hauntings or anniversary hauntings, um, there is this theory that's, that there is this uh, residual effect that something from the event can be imprinted within the environment. Uh, at the time of imprint, of course, there will be a given set of conditions, a specific temperature, humidity, etc., etc. Now, it's most likely that those conditions, uh, those environmental conditions, would be replicable around the same time of year. So, for example, an event that took place in July, the weather conditions then are not going to be similar in January, but are going to be similar, more likely, in July. Do you think that, that those conditions could give rise to this anniversary effect, this calendar effect. So it could be something within the environment rather than the event itself. That, uh, I think, is a, a very good approach to looking at that uh, type of phenomena. Um, it, whatever it is that's doing the haunting is maybe looking to replicate the experience, uh, as you say, with the certain type of uh, Temperatures, daylight, um, the type of activity that's going around, you know, on in the structure at the time. Obviously, we have different habits, you know, that we, the living, have different habits in the dead of winter than we do in the middle of summer. So I think that could be a very big part of why we see these roughly anniversary type uh, hauntings. Yeah, that was always my uh, my pet peeve. You know, the mediums and psychics would always tell you, well, in fact, a lot of paranormal investigators that time doesn't exist on the other side. And yet they're always the first to grab that anniversary uh, haunting uh, theory. So you can't have it both ways. Either it, it exists or it doesn't exist. No, and interestingly, um, uh, because of the, the nature of the anniversary of the calendar um, apparition, the they become amongst the most investigated people still gather every, every July 28th at Borley Village in, in Essex, England, in order mm -hmm. to see the nun walk. Um, people go to Blickling Hall to see the ghost of Anne Boleyn, etc., etc. There are hundreds and hundreds of, Alan, of calendar and anniversary hauntings, and, of course, hundreds and thousands of people go to see them. And they're all disappointed because what, the, what these events actually show is that by and large, there's no such thing as a calendar or anniversary ghost. They, they just fail to show up time and time again. Yeah, but we have many reports of anniversary ghosts. And, no, we have and... lots of stories of anniversary ghosts. Yes, exactly. A story and report. 
and we have well, lots and lots is, of stories. Is there really, is there really a difference between – why? Isn't a story a, 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 a report by well, someone? Uh, uh, no, because you wouldn't you – wouldn't, uh, the police officer wouldn't file a story. He files a report, which is a, a verbatim account of an experience. A story is uh, a fictional account. Or in the case of many, many ghost books, what they're actually doing is repeating somebody else's story and we cycling the, the story over and over. The vast majority of, of uh, ghost books uh, don't contain or rarely contain original material. It's, it, it, it's a case of somebody told them or they read it somewhere. You know, you pick up a... I've got several books here about the ghosts of the county I'm in now, and they all have the same, the same story. They all have the same accounts of the same ghosts because they're all using the same source material. They're all rehashing the information. So the, the anniversary of ghosts that's written about in 25 different books about ghosts is still the same story. But when, when people go along to the sites, there's nothing to be seen. The, the actual research doesn't support the anniversary of ghosts. Hmm. Well, I don't know what to say on that one. But anyway, back to Linda. Linda, one thing uh, that you did, and I still remember it uh, back in uh, whenever we we, we uh, did meet. And, and we met at the, uh, the Houghton Mansion in North Adams for one of the first uh, events I ever did, which was Contact. And you had these CDs with, with uh, some of the ghost stories on them and and they were a fun thing to do do you still enjoy doing ghost stories as well as investigating oh absolutely um in fact i am currently finishing up volume 13 of my ghost investigator uh books really i i yeah i just um it's a totally different experience from you know being in alone or with a couple of people on an investigation and then standing up in front of an audience and relating that, you know, that case to them. I really enjoy presenting the findings, um, both in my books and in my lectures. So uh, that's really uh, a big part of what's kept me going with this for so many years. You know, it, it's funny because, I mean, you and I both enjoy doing that, but, you know, I, I'm not sure that Steve does because Steve tends to talk more about academical stuff when he does his ghost uh, lectures. It's more um, – he's not really relaying any of the the stories that really you know drive us to do what we do. Is that right, Steve, or am I getting that wrong? I think you've been totally disingenuous tonight. No, really? Uh, I, am I, am I, I wrong with that? I'm well, sorry. I'm sorry. Well, yeah. Stories are, it's a human experience. The story is, is the basis of everything we do, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. we, 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 we work with thousands of years of folklore and mythology. Many ghost stories are folklore, are mythology. They're handed down. They're modern folklore. We don't see ghosts. Ghost investigators very, very rarely see ghosts. But we go because somebody has had an experience, because they share their experience. They they phone us up. They might write to us, contact us. It becomes a story. It becomes then written down. We write it down. Um, we, we tell it. We research it. We're adding to the folklore, to the mythology of the story. So storytelling is very much part of what we do. And 
I, you can't separate it from, from the actual investigation. Yes, that's a methodology. And you know today that I sent you a story, effectively. Um, and it was a good one, too, by haunted, the way. Telling the story of a haunted castle. Because it's just one facet of what we do. But when I, when I deal with the public in the talks and the things that I do, I tend to stick to... <laughs> An area that nobody else does, um, for want of a better way, because there are lots of storytellers, there are lots and lots of ghost investigators, and you have to find your own niche. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, and so, I just, you know, I just upset people. So. <laughs> anyway, Linda. <laughs> My niche. <laughs> You've got a niche. That's what I was always going to say. Yeah. You've got a niche, Scrub. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, Linda, uh, if people, <laughs> you're still doing events and so forth, uh, and, and they are listed on your website, uh, do you do? Uh, you know, I know a lot of groups and everything do public investigations, including myself, where we take people along. Do you do that type of stuff as well? Um, I, I don't generally do that, but there is one uh, location we do every. Halloween season. Uh, it's a Boscobel. Uh, it's a restored uh, mansion from 1808, and a beautiful, beautiful site. And uh, actually built by a uh, British loyalist who uh, uh, built his dream home there on the Hudson River. And what we'll do is uh, I'll give a lecture beforehand, and then we take them on kind of a ghost tour slash investigation through the mansion afterwards. But um, I generally don't do the big group ghost hunts. They're, they, they tend to be a little chaotic and unproductive, at least from my perspective. Right. And, you know, any anything you really collect on it, it's, it's difficult to you know, uh, put any credence to, uh, as well. But, um, do you, so, I mean, do you do this the event? I assume, uh, the place that you do it at, uh, gets some funds for its, uh, preservation. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons I do it. Um, it sells it. We're, we're up to three nights in a row now because they, they keep selling out and it, you know, it generates funds to keep this, uh, this place going and keep its history alive. And uh, that's one of the things I really enjoy about doing my presentations as well. I, I always make sure I let everybody know the history of these sites. And, in fact, I've concentrated that on a couple of my books, uh, historic haunted sites, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, the more people appreciate uh, a site, the less apt they are to destroy it or neglect it. So it doesn't hurt to get a little education in the middle of a ghost story. I mean, that's the cool thing that what Steve does and what I do. I mean, Steve look, you know, he goes into the the scientific, uh, you know, theories and and some of the, uh, you know, what works, what doesn't works, and if even that, trying to explain things, which you know, a lot of ghost groups don't do. But uh, uh, myself, I, I, I enjoy the history as well. I think that's such a key part to it. Without the history, we really don't have the ghosts, which is uh, uh, so important uh, for what we do. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, it's it's. Uh, I think it's the canvas that we paint our ghost stories on. 
That's a good way of putting it. A very good way of putting it. And Steve, I'm not I'm not really trying to say that you're like dull or boring either, because uh, I've gone to your lectures and I know damn well uh, there can be quite amusing at times. Uh, but I hope so. I, I try my best. Right, but I mean, do you? I mean, do you feel that when given your side, the scientific side, more of uh, the cynical side, I guess, not cynical, I say skeptical side, am I getting this right, that you're actually educating as part as, as like we would educate it with history? And, and of course, you educate with history, too, because you talk about the history of things. So do you think you're actually, uh, you know, teaching at the same time? I think education is very important. Um, but I think you have to entertain. You have to engage people. You have to um, you have to draw them in and get them interested. They're, they're there for a reason. Um, you don't want to bore them. You they've come to they come to look for ghosts. They don't want to listen to you blather on for hours. But you have to entertain them and inform them. And it, I I put the try and put the two together. I've always called it edutainment. Um, a little bit of education. Uh, hopefully a little bit of entertainment. Um, I think that's the important way forward. That's why I use the media. That's why I don't have an issue about appearing on television programs that are predominantly seen as entertaining because they allow me to reach an audience with an explanation that they may never have considered before. They may decide to throw that explanation away and go with a, a different explanation or a belief or, or something else that you know they, they, they prefer, but at least they, they have heard and, and can consider the additional information. You're not going to reach them by any other means. Um, so the presentation is vital, vitally important. So, Linda, when you do your investigating, I know history is so important to you. Uh, if you find something that quite doesn't meshes with the history that, that you're aware of, how do you handle that? Uh, as in disproving uh, a story? Oh, not, not disproving. What, what do you do? For instance, uh, say you're investigating a, a uh, haunted mansion, and you know pretty much that the history of the mansion, as far as you know, you know, is, and all of a sudden you get some type of uh, God. I'm really stretching now. <laughs> say you had a spirit that came in and said he was totally somebody that you weren't aware of that even died at the mansion. And so, w what would you do in that? instance well uh obviously there these are very fluid situations um mm -hmm. you know i i don't go in with uh okay this is what we we have to find um nine times out of ten i'm i'm surprised by something on an investigation something new um obviously the people who tell us the stories to get to these locations um, you know, they haven't lived there for 50 years, so maybe they've lived there for a few years and they know a small part of it. And, you know, I always say a haunting is kind of like uh, layers of an onion. You just keep peeling them back and peeling them back and find um, some of these cases go back much farther and, and are much more involved than we, we initially anticipated. So have you ever found that, for instance, that you found something that was uh, that really happened in the in the history of the place, but you were unaware of before you went in, and it, perhaps maybe even before uh, anyone else knew. 
Uh, there have been some very interesting discoveries we've made. Yes, there's a case I'm thinking of. Um, actually, uh, my ghost hunting partner Mike's grandmother's house, where there was uh, people were seeing small a small child and would be suddenly overwhelmed with this sense of the loss of a child. And we, after years of working on this, we, we came upon um, a, a judge who owned the house uh, about a hundred or so years ago. And in his obituary, he, it, it mentions that he lost his seven-year-old son to diphtheria and that it was a loss he never recovered from. And uh, this was the predominant thing that was going on in the house, and nobody knew about the judge or the death of this child in the house. And so we, we just knew what people were experiencing and reporting. So to be able to then trace it through the history and find actual facts, actual incidences, I'll at least say, that matched up with the experience was, you know, well, it was an amazing case. Yeah, I, I find that interesting. Uh, for You know, to me, that seems like, uh, you know, real good evidence that, that you discovered something new, you know, no one else knew about it. So right, as far no. as paranormal investigating, that's, that's you know, to me, that's like the gold standard. I mean, it's, it's awesome that you could come up with something as cool as that. And I noticed you used the term gold standard there. <laughs> Did I really? Oh, it must have been a slip of the tongue. I am so sorry. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that's that's the kind of the cool stuff. A lot of investigators, investigators and investigations, they go in knowing the history of a place, and then they, they try to whatever uh, evidence uh, they, they collect, they always – like the ancient astronaut theorists always slanted to make it fit and in this right. case it's 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 good it's a refreshing actually you you can't mold the evidence to your preconceived theory you have to um if i have to disregard everything i thought i knew about the place so be it because uh, why else would i be collecting evidence if it wasn't to then form you know a, a different picture of the location. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Steve. I mean, that's that's always your pet peeve is is that if a psychic goes in, then he he knows the history of the place. He he's he's naturally going to pick up on these things. It, well, right, no, Steve? I mean, the, the, no. Uh, it is. It, it's very possible that you know that the information could leak out. I mean, you're talking about information that wasn't known prior to the investigation. That's incredibly difficult. Uh, um, because we have access to so much information, and how do you say that somebody didn't didn't visit the site long, long ago, or somebody hasn't read about the site ten years ago, fifteen years ago? Um, if the inf if 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 you can find that information post event, then clearly it was there all along, and somebody else could have found it, or you might have stumbled across it previously. It's one of those great conundrums. Um, you know, people say. They, the medium came up with this information that we didn't know beforehand, but when we checked, it was accurate. But where did you check? How did you find it so quickly that you could check it so How quickly? How difficult was it to find? Exactly. Um, I, I only know of two cases where, where it was genuinely able 
where possible to backtrack the uh, information trail to show that it could not have been known by investigators at the time. Um, that was just sheer good fortune because the archive, in which the only copy of the record existed, kept a, a list of uh, the times it had been accessed. Um, so this idea of we can't get the information in advance is, is one problem. The other problem is the idea that one piece of information then skews off the whole investigation. I've spent some of today watching um, a great deal of uh, documentary footage about 9-11 and the, the truthers, as they call themselves, and yeah. watching the same piece of... Well, what's interesting is watching the same piece of video footage being presented by different factions within the truthers and debunkers some uh, and each of them putting their own spin on exactly the same piece of information um, exactly. and it's it's not that it's not a testament it's it's an objective piece of video footage and yet you have one piece of video footage the same piece of video footage and you have 10 interpretations of it and that's the same as you get with the uh, human testimony from a medium that's the same as you get from a human experience uh, you get all of these different widely scattering interpretations and they can skew the ultimate results of the investigation you can as linda said you, you could distort the history the the there is an effect known within psychical research which is one of the holy grails of psychical research it's called the dropping communicator um in which an event or a communicating entity drops in, literally, and has nothing at all to do with the location or the individuals, and yet comes through to communicate. And they are the ones that are the most sought after and the most interesting for psychical researchers, because you you can remove at a stroke a great deal of, of uh, the location cues and triggers that you would normally expect to see. Right, so... Anyways, um, I know we're getting down towards the end of the show, Linda. Anything else you want to tell us uh, in particular? Um, well, I I am constantly looking for, for more cases. So people uh, in, in New England or particularly the tri-state area here, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, um, please feel free to get in touch with me with, with your stories. Um, you know, I, I don't charge anything in, for an investigation because I'm not claiming I, I'm ever going to be able to do anything about it. I just want to research it. And I, as we were speaking of before, um, you know, so many groups have popped up, you know, wanting to be ghost hunters. And, um, you know, a lot of them ask me for advice as to the best way to conduct an investigation and, again, wanting to you know, spend a fortune on uh, all kinds of technology, you know, I, I usually tell them, stand still and be quiet. Um, that's the best way to start an investigation. And, uh, you know, do your research as scientifically as possible. As possible. Um, do your historical research. Interview as many people as you can. Um, and be, be honest with yourself. I, I see so many groups wanting so much to get that Amityville horror case. Pizza you know, Bell. Be, excuse me? Pizza, Pizza Bell. Bell. <laughs> means you didn't hear the doorbell, but the doorbell rang, which means we're just about out of time. So I, oh, yeah, okay. that's what that was about. I apologize. Spoiling our show. 
Did that for Ron's benefit because of the ad break earlier. (laughs) I'm sorry, Linda. If you ever do you ever come to New England, you should definitely connect with me sometime, and uh, you know I'll take you out to dinner or something. We'll uh, can talk about uh, cases. Do a do a gold standard investigation of our own. Yeah, there you go. Well, maybe it's only silver, you know. I mean, we're only, after all, we're only bronze, yeah, we're um, only you know. colonials. We're only colonials, you know. <laughs> uh, we'll do Zimmerman. a pewter, a tarnished pewter. Uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Probably via silver. I like that. Uh, anyways, uh, we want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, interesting conversation with you as always. Uh, once again, please give out your websites. Uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with Linda, they can reach you here. At uh, gotozim.com, G-O-T-O-Z-I-M.com, and all my books are available, paperback and e-books, um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other sites. Yeah, so cool. Uh, one of the, the I have to say this, and uh, the, one of the first books I saw with you, it had uh, Linda on the cover in this, uh, uh, with a big hourglass and the and the. Uh, the little heels and all, all like the, the uh, cap, like a, like a uh, 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 private eye. It was so funny. Do you remember that? Well, I, I take my work seriously, not myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Linda, so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep, bye. Thank you, Linda. Well, that's uh, another one showed down the tubes, I guess they say. So, uh, Steve, uh, thanks a lot. A lot. All right. Actually, that means something different over here. Down the tubes means went badly. Went badly. Maybe it means the same thing in America. I don't know. Yeah. If we say it's gone down the tubes or down the pan, it, it's not a good sign. Okay. All right. Went up the tubes then. How's and that? And this the international show. Yeah. That, right. This show went brilliantly. Oh, brilliant. That's right. Sick. That's an English word, brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, it went brilliantly. Or, or, it, or we used to collect California into it. It was sick, man. Yeah, there you go, sick. So anyways, uh, remind everybody, you're joining us for Spirit Quest this year in September. Uh, it'd be good to see you again yeah. other adventures as well. Cool. So check out yeah, the website. Bye. From goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good luck.